His head bowed and eyes closed, we were going to pray ask God to be not with us because he's already with us. Where two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst of them. He's here. We're going to ask him to speak to us. And we're going to ask him to give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. We're also going to pray for our, our brothers uh, who are also preaching from here in our church family this morning. Brother Bill Rigsby, is, uh, he and Linda are gone. He's preaching at uh, former church of mine, Double Springs Baptist in Townville. And uh, Brother John Deal is preaching this morning at uh, La France First Baptist Church as well. So let's pray for them as we pray for ourselves this morning. Father, thank you for the um, opportunity, Lord, and privilege it is to be able to gather together and to worship you. We pray, Father, as we have gathered today that you've been honored with everything that's said and done thus far in our worship service because this is not about us. It's all about you. We pray that you're pleased. That's, that's the chief. We ask for that you would bless sister churches all around our community. Lord, we recognize we're on the same team. Um, and we ask for a mighty move of the Holy Spirit there just as we ask for it here. And now, Father, as we open your word, we thank you that it's yours, that it's perfect, and that we can trust it. As we just sang, Father, you do not fail us. And your word certainly doesn't fail. So we ask God that we would divide the word of God rightly this morning. That you would be with me, that you would put your thoughts in my mind and your words in my mouth. Lord, help us to receive the word of truth gladly, to submit ourselves to it. Father, I do pray that if there is anyone here physically in this place or those who join us online who don't have a personal and saving relationship with you, that today would be that day. They would bend their knee to a sovereign God and embrace the gift of salvation that's available through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And for all other spiritual decisions that need to be made, we, we pray that you would give us faith and we would respond in a way that would glorify your son Jesus. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for desiring and delighting and blessing your people and father now as we come to this preaching time we pray and we acknowledge that satan is real that he desires to steal the word of god the seed from planted being planted and falling on good soil and springing up fruit in the days to come but we thank you that satan is a defeated foe and jesus christ is lord May his name be magnified in this place. In Jesus' name. If you agree with me in prayer, would you say amen? Join me in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is where we're going to be in just a few moments. As you're turning there, I'll tell you a story about uh, an old horse trainer that I heard about once. Uh, he had been through the ringer. He was up in years. He had trained horse after horse after horse to be trail horses because they lived near a mountain range. And people would often come by and rent horses from him to ride this mountain trail. Well, he got a little older and decided to have a little bit of fun with one of those horses. So he trained it a little bit differently. He decided that it, he was going to train this, this horse that if he wanted it to go, you wouldn't say giddy up. You would say, praise the Lord. And if you wanted the horse to stop, you wouldn't pull the reins back and say, whoa. You would say, amen. Well, Sure enough, wasn't long, a guy came by and said, can I borrow a trail? 
And the guy said, yeah, I've got one that's available right now, but he's a little bit different. The commands that you have to use for this horse are a little bit different. And he explained it to this man who was about to head off onto the trail. He said, if you want this horse to go, you you don't say giddy up. You you say, praise the Lord. And and if you want this horse to stop, you don't say, whoa, you, you just say, amen, and he'll stop. The guy thought it was kind of funny, but he said, I'll try that. That sounds good. He loaded the horse up on its trailer. He went to this mountain trail, unloaded it, put the saddle on it, bridle in its mouth. He got on this horse, and he thought about it for a minute. He remembered the old man's instructions, and he said, okay, we're going to give it a try. Praise the Lord. And sure enough, the horse started trotting along. He was blown away by this. He had never seen anything like this before, and it was going well. He wanted to, to speed up a little bit, so he said, praise the Lord. And the horse started to speed up a little bit. About an hour into their ride, things were going so well, he said, I want to see how fast this horse could really go. So he kicked it one good time and said, praise the Lord. Horse took off on an absolute gallop. It was flying through these ridges. and through. He was a little bit scared, but this was a good horse. And then all of a sudden he noticed this horse was galloping right towards the edge of a cliff. He said, this is not good. This horse may never stop. So he said, whoa, horse. And the horse didn't stop. He said, oh, no, whoa, horse. And he pulled the bridle back even further. He said, whoa, horse. And the horse wouldn't stop. Finally, at the last second, he remembered. He said, amen. And the horse slid to a stop right on the edge of this cliff. Rocks fell off. The old man said, whoo, praise the Lord. Hmm. It's, it's good not to get const- instructions confused, isn't it? We've seen in this series of messages we're preaching through, if you're a guest here with us, we're preaching through the Beatitudes, and, and we're, we've noted that the Beatitudes can, well, they can be a little bit confusing because at their surface, they, they seem to be a, a bit of a contradiction of terms in a way. There's, there's some statements that are made that just, they, they're almost nonsensical if we take, those beatitudes and we pluck them from their context and just read them individually we, we were we were reminded of a couple of things when most people think about a blessed life we think about things like wealth and plenty and and riches but we were reminded in our first week together Jesus said blessed are the poor the poor in spirit the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven to mind, and that's totally appropriate, totally okay. But remember last week, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, these Beatitudes, if we see them as a, as a list of individual New Testament proverbs that are disconnected from one another, they really won't make a lot of sense. But these aren't independent sayings. These are not designed to stand alone. They're connected. They're spoken. And later on, they're recorded in a purposeful sequence. One just builds off of the other. And when we look at them in that way, it enables us to understand what Jesus was saying to us in this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. There's life and there's abundance attached, not to material poverty. Remember, we saw that material poverty has no virtue in and of itself. It's not speaking of that. Spiritual poverty. There's life and blessing attached to recognize how, how spiritually poor that we are, that, that none of us could strut before God. None of us could say to the Lord as we stood before Him, look at, look at me, look at what I've done. 
There's nothing, we have nothing in and of ourselves that commends us to God. We can't work or serve or give or preach or attend church enough to earn his mercy or earn his grace, certainly not to earn entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That's what makes the gospel such good news. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves, amen? That's, that's the good news of the gospel. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And that's not from you. It's not your works. So no one can boast. So Jesus was saying we're blessed. We're blessed when we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy before God. Because it ends that endless cycle, of that, that frustrating cycle of trying to earn what we could never earn for ourselves. What we could never attain. And when that acknowledgement happens, it led us into the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. Those who are broken over their sin. The sin that has separated us from God. And we, we learned that this is not just mere sadness. It's not being sorry because we've been caught. Remember, the, the strongest word in the Greek vocabulary for mourn is the word that's, that's used here. It, it conveys the idea of being utterly devastated by the sin that has nailed Jesus to the cross. We call this conviction. This is mourning. It's called conviction. The good news of that beatitude is, is there's a promise attached to it as well. The Bible says, blessed are those. It, that's a fulfillment of Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves such as have a contrite spirit. So the first beatitude that we studied together, it dealt with our sin. The second beatitude that we studied together dealt with our sorrow. The beatitude that we're going to study today deals with our submission. It deals with our submission. So join me in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be in verse 5 today. And Jesus says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's say that together. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now again, at its surface, this seems to be a kind of a contradictory statement. It almost seems to be nonsense. Meekness, or your translation might use the word humility, is not something that our dominant culture views as something that's admirable. It's not something that our culture views as something that we should, we should strive for. In fact, our human flesh, our own, our own nature, would lead us to believe that we should never, ever reveal a meek spirit, a docile spirit, a submissive spirit. In fact, the world around us honors the opposite of that, right? Think, that, think about that for a moment. Arrogance gets a platform in our world. Pride and conceit get a place of, of privilege, the most prominent in our culture, whether we're looking at leaders and politicians or celebrities, whatever the case might be. The prominent in our world are out front. They're assertive. They're, they're self-confident. They're, they're individuals who, who did whatever it took to get to their place and will do whatever it takes in order to stay there. When this beatitude was first heard by this audience, there on this mountainside, as Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, as it was first heard by the audience who would hear it read, this, it would have had a similar effect to the way it has upon us as we hear it today. Greco-Roman culture ruled the day. And the Greeks viewed this term meek as a really, uh, this is really a cuss word. And, and this is really a derogatory term that would be used. The, the word that's used here that Jesus says, blessed are the meek, the Greeks 
who would have heard this, the Greeks who influenced the Jews who would have heard this, viewed this term as, as something that was fitting for lowly servants, but certainly never. It's derogatory. To be called meek in Greek culture is a slap in the face. Yet Jesus says here in the text, blessed. Remember what blessed means? We talked about this. Happy. Happy. Life, abundance, joy. Blessed are the meek, for they shall end you. So what, what is Jesus saying here? To his audience then, and because God's word is timeless, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. What's he saying to us now when he says, blessed are the meek? If you're taking notes this morning, first I want to note the explanation of meekness. The explanation of meekness. Underline that word meek in your Bible if you do Mark in your Bible. And I want to make this note really quickly before we move on. It's actually impossible to... to accurately translate this ancient Greek word with just one English word. Meek's the best crack we can get at it, but it's actually impossible to translate it with just one English word. The idea behind this word is a proper balance that's struck between ability and humility. The proper balance between strength and usefulness. The proper balance between power and control. I want you to know what it doesn't mean before we understand what it does mean. When we say meek, we're not talking about weak. And we're not talking about fearful. Let me ask you this question. Was Jesus weak? Was he fearful? I hope you listened to the passage that Brother Kirk read this morning where Jesus described himself. And Jesus could have described himself in any number of ways, but here's what he said about himself in the passage we've already read this morning. I am meek and lowly of heart. Jesus said that he's meek, yet we know that Jesus wasn't weak. We know that Jesus wasn't fearful. In fact, he was the opposite of those things. He was the strongest, most courageous man who ever walked the face of the earth. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Some of y'all can't go 10 minutes without something to eat. 40 days and 40 nights he fasted out in the wilderness. He was often in mountains alone there in Israel. He faced hostile crowds on every corner, took unfair and harsh criticism from those around him, was betrayed by a good friend. He takes all this with dignity and with courage. The, the Jews that had turned the temple into a tanger outlet, he took a whip and he drove them out of the temple and, and turned over tables he willingly bore a cross on his back for crimes that he did not commit and and walked the via dolorosa without complaint he was beaten scorned despised rejected betrayed ultimately executed for the sake of you and for the sake of me listen to philippians 2 5 through 8 let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Get this, him's manger. He knew why he was coming to this earth. He knew what it entailed. He knew the pain. He knew the misery. He knew the blood. He knew the death that was coming his way. Yet he came anyway for you and for me. There's not a thing meek or weak about that. There's nothing fearful about that. Meekness doesn't mean cowardly. It doesn't mean impotent. What does it mean? The Greeks used this word to describe a horse. 
that had been broken. That, that's the way this word would be used in ancient Greek culture when speaking it in a correct way. It would be used to talk about a horse that had been broken. Think about this for a moment. A, a, a wild horse is a beautiful sight, isn't it? You ever watched one running across the pasture? It's, just, it's absolutely wild to watch. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. It's a picture of strength, a picture of talent, a picture of, of power. But, but that strength and that talent and the power that that horse possesses is of no use until that horse has been broken. Until that horse has been broken. Until it's been brought under control. That's the only way that it actually can fulfill its purpose. You can let a horse run wild, or you can corral him and lock him up. Either way, he won't fulfill his purpose, but you could also bridle him, put a bit in his mouth, cause him to channel that strength for ener- and that energy for good. And that's the idea here in our text. You and all, we passions, certain talents, certain traits, and those things are God-given. There's nothing wrong with them at all, but his desire is not for us to run wild with them. And just do with them what we desire and what we please to serve our own ambitions, our own purposes. That's not it at all. That only leads to heartache. His desire is also not that we be locked up in a stall, never using the gifts that God has given us and the talents and the ambitions and the the traits that we have. That's not God's desire. His desire is to channel those things so that we may be used for His glory and for the good of others. That's the picture of meekness that we have here in the text. So to be meek means to be submissive to the Lord's control. To be submissive, submitting ourselves to His authority. To be meek is to yield our lives and our our passions, our ambitions, our plans, our talents, our gifts, our abilities to the Lord. That's the explanation of what meekness is. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are meek. So the question becomes, am I that? Is that, does that mark my life? We're going we're gonna to find out. Listen very carefully, because what we're going to share with you will, will mark. It'll, it'll tell you, it'll give you a good gauge as to whether or not meekness marks your life. I'm going to give you number two evidences of meekness. There are two great evidences of meekness in a life. The first one is humility. The first one is humility. There are over a hundred passages of Scripture calling upon children of God to be humble. We could, we could cite a, literally a hundred of them right now. There's one that came to my mind when I was working through this text, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he might exalt you in due time, casting all of your care upon him, for he cares for you. We have other places in the Scriptures where we have warnings and, and for those who are not humble. And, and James chapter 4, James says that, that God, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this humility has everything to do with submitting ourselves to the authority of God. Giving his word authority over our lives and our decisions. Don't you listen very carefully to me for a moment. We're in a unique cultural moment right here. What we have to understand as believers, if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, would you say, I am? Okay, here's a, this, this is true for you, and it's true for me. In our culture right now, and this is bleeding over into our lives, we have to be careful. It's bleeding over into the church, we have to be careful. We're yielding our lives, and yielding our opinions, and yielding our thoughts, and you have authority over us. 
what, what we're learning here in the Scriptures, and, and this is evidence in James chapter 1, verse 21, it says this, Lay therefore aside all filthiness, overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness, with humility, the implanted word. The implanted word. Here's what this means. I am not to give my feelings authority. My feelings are fickle. My feelings change. You want to know how? Watch me over the course of a Clemson football season. It's wild. I am not to give authority to my feelings. Feelings are a gift from God. God gives us emotions. God is an emotional being. We're created in His image. But we are not to give authority to our emotions. Our emotions are not to dictate the way we live our lives. I I am not to give authority over to my opinions. I want you to know I've got some. I've got some opinions, and I've got some strong opinions. But let me tell you what my opinions are not. My opinions are not the Word of God. My opinions are not Scripture. I'm to yield to the Scriptures, not to my opinions, not to my preferences. I've got preferences. You've got preferences. We've all got preferences, right? And that's okay. That's good. God wired us that way. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But those preferences are not God's Word. I'm not to yield myself to the preferences that I've had the experiences that I've had. I'm not to yield myself. I'm to yield myself as a believer to the Word of God, to give it authority over my life. What this means in a very, a very simple way is that God, not myself, not my thoughts, not my preferences, not my opinions, not the world's opinion, not anything, but God has authority over my life, period. There's blessing that's found in that. There's blessing that's found in it. Blessed are the meek. So, so evidence of, of meekness can be found in our humility, our willingness to say, Lord, I don't feel this way, but here's what you've said. So I'm going to go with that. Lord, the world around me is saying this thing, and it would be easier for me to go with this thing. But here's what your word says. Lord, I think this. But here's what your word says. Meekness says, even when I don't feel it, even when I don't like it, even when it makes it difficult for me, I'm going with God. I'm submitting myself to the authority of His Word. So there's humility. That's an evidence of meekness. But let me give you another one. Selflessness is an evidence of meekness. Selflessness. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, meekness is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Meekness, again, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. If you're wondering whether or not meekness marks your life, you don't have to look necessarily at your actions, but your reactions. To put that very simply, listen very carefully. Here's the question. You say, well, I don't know if I'm a meek person. Here's, Here's the answer to that question. How do you respond when you don't get your way? That, that's the easiest way to know whether or not you've got meekness in your life. How do you respond when things don't go your way? That's a good question to ask. How, how do I react when my plans get pushed aside? How, how do I act when my expectations are not met? What do I do when I don't get what I want? If the people around you walk on eggshells because they're scared to death of how you're going to respond with personal disappointment, meekness is not a virtue that marks your life. You can say amen or you can say oh me. One of the two. It's fine. Either one's fine. It's just reality. 
It's, it's a good question. It's a good question regarding everything in life, whether it's our personal lives, our relational lives, our church lives, whatever the case might be. It's an amazing thing in churches. We, we've, again, a unique cultural moment in church. We've, we've developed this pattern, this mindset of consumerism in the church where we honestly believe that this place is Burger King and we get to have it our way. There's nothing in the scriptures that mandates that foolishness. One of the greatest lessons that I've learned in my life is simple. It's four words. It's not about me. My life is not about me. This church is not about me. My family is not about me. It's not about me. Meekness is, meekness is found and it's seen in our selflessness. Understand, it's not about me. But this is where things get very difficult. So I'm going to slow down. And we're going to walk through something that's hard. That's what scriptures do. We don't want to shy away from that. Meekness is not only required in my actions, my humility, my reactions, being selflessness. Meekness is required in relation to my enemies. Even the mistreatment that sometimes comes from them. Actually, in the same chapter. Jesus tells us something that there's nothing in Kyle's flesh that agrees with it. There's nothing in me that would say, yeah, that makes sense. I'll go with that. Here's what Jesus says, love your enemies. He says later on the sermon, you've been slapped, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. That requires meekness. Listen. We're no different than this world if we only love those who love us back. We're no, we're no different from this world if, if we only treat people well, if we know we're going to be treated well in return. Now, I know some would listen to that and would say, that's hard. I agree. I agree, and I have not done well with it all of my life. I promise you that. It's hard to be meek, and it's hard to be humble. It's hard to be submissive when the world around me is increasingly hostile toward what we believe towards who we are, towards the Christ that we serve. I agree, it's hard. That's why I want to end here. The last thing I want to share is some encouragement to meekness. Some encouragement to meekness. One of my favorite hymns is, is found um, in old Redback hymnal. You remember those? It was called, This Is My Father, my Granny Peg singing it while she washes dishes. I could hear it in my head. This is my father's world and to my listening ears. All nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest in me the thought. If rocks and trees and skies and seas, his hands, the wonders wrought. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says this, The, Lord, the earth is the Lord's. This is his, y'all. It all belongs to him. And that hour hiking uh, Friday morning, I just looking around. This is all his. All of its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas. He established it upon the waters. This world belongs to God. He created He sustains it. And when he created man in his own image there in the Garden of Eden, he gives him dominion over this world. But then man forfeited that dominion. When he rebelled against the God who had given him life. He rebelled against his creator and there was a curse that fell upon man. This promise in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, is a promise that 
there's a day coming when that curse is reversed. There's a day coming when that curse is going to be lifted. And I want you to see this before we remember the Old and the New Testament. This is connected. Jesus is quoting from the Psalms in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Listen very carefully to the words of Psalm 37, 8, 10, 10 through 18. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Seems like they're winning sometimes, doesn't it? But in a little while, the psalmist says that the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for this place, but it shall be no more. For the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Yes, the wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent the bow to cast down the poor and the needy, to slay those who are upright in their conduct. The sword shall enter their own heart. Their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken. But the Lord upholds the righteous. Isn't that good news? The Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. What does that mean for us in the light of Matthew 5, 5? It means this, meekness. Even in the face of ugliness, even in the face of slander, even in the gloating of enemies, is trusting that in the end, God wins. And because He wins, we win. Meekness is believing by faith that He really does have a plan, that He is really working all things together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purposes, even when it doesn't seem that way. It means that we endure hardship without being hardened by it. Meekness means that we do the right thing even when it's not the popular thing, even when it's the hard thing. It means serving and singing even while I'm suffering. It means worshiping even in the midst of waiting. It means trusting and believing and hoping during difficult seasons and circumstances determined that through this I'll grow better, not bitter. That's what meekness is. That's what meekness is. Years ago, in a remote area of the Alps, there were botanists and scientists that were searching for this flower that some of the natives said existed, but had never been discovered before. They were, they were on this mission. This would be a loculars there in the Alps on this cliffside. They, they saw a flower that had never been seen. They had to get one of these flowers for a specimen so they could take it back and study it. Oh, their name would be all over the scientific journals when they got back. But the problem was this was on such a steep cliffside that there's no way they could traverse this kind of terrain. It was far too dangerous. One of the little guys that were with them, he, he was a little native there, and he was guiding them up this mountain terrain. They asked him, they said, we'll pay you handsomely. If you'll let us tie rope to your waist, lower you over that cliffside just to retrieve one of those flowers. Bring it back so that we could take it home, so that we could study it. We, we could put this thing in the science books. What we'll give you, it, it'll be more money than you'll ever need in your life. Would you do it? And the boy said, give me a minute. He took off running back down the trails. 
Finally, he came back up with an old man, white hair. He said, I'll do it on one occasion. I'll do it if this man's holding the rope. This is my daddy, and he won't let go. Saints, meekness is knowing, not thinking. Knowing that you can yield your life, yield your ambitions, yield your passions, yield your talents, even yield your battles to the Lord. He's holding the rope, and he's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you go. I'm going to ask our deacons to come forward at this time. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper together as an invitation. Brothers, two of you can uncover that, if you don't mind. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship, and it's an opportunity to worship. It's not just another box to check off to say we've done what we're supposed to do today. Now, this is something that the Lord commanded for us. There are two ordinances that our Lord Jesus gave to the church. One was baptism, and one was the Lord's Supper. This morning, we observe the Lord's Supper today. These brothers are deacons here at North Anderson Baptist Church. The word deacon means servant. They're here to serve you. And in just a moment, they're going to disperse the elements of the Lord's Supper to everyone who is here. And if you'll just wait for a moment after receiving it, I'll give you the instructions that you need as we partake in the Lord's Supper. The question becomes, should I take the Lord's Supper? Who is this for? The Lord's Supper is very specifically for believers. It's for those who have embraced the gift of salvation and not anyone outside of that. Years and years and years ago, before a person would be baptized, our early church fathers used a creed called the Apostles' Creed to affirm, they would be able to affirm what it is necessary to believe in order to be a Christian so that no false converts would be baptized. We're going to recite together the Apostles' Creed. It's going to be on your screen. And if you can't recite this creed, believing by faith that the words that are found within it that deal with the issue of salvation are true in your own life, then you're not to partake in the Lord's Supper. If you can, by faith, recite this creed, believing in your heart what we're going to recite together, then you're free to observe the Lord's Supper today. The Apostles' Creed, it's going to be on your screen. You'll just say it with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Brothers, we'll pray, and they'll hand out these elements of the communion table. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you 
for the opportunity that we have to share in the Lord's table. Father, this is as much an act of worship as our singing, our preaching, our responding to the Word of God. Father, help us not to take this lightly or just routinely, but call to our minds the price that was paid for our redemption. Thank you for the body that was broken for us. Thank you for the blood that was shed for us. In Jesus' name, thank you, brother. Gentlemen, you can be seated. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul wrote this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had taken it, he gave thanks. He broke it. And he said, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul then wrote, In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord is good. Amen? Amen. Amen.